Welcome to the Intentional Growth Podcast, the show that teaches you how to grow the value of a company with an end in mind. Host Ryan Tansom interviews top business leaders, authors, entrepreneurs, and other professionals who share their experience and expertise about buying, growing, and selling companies. Welcome back and thanks for tuning in. This is episode 237 of the Intentional Growth Podcast. Today's guest name is Sandra Spielberg and she is an entrepreneur and the author of the best-selling and award-winning book called The New Startup Mindset, 10 Mindset Shifts to Build the Company of Your Dreams. Sandra started, built, and sold her first company, Seeker Health, within three years to the third interested party. Since then, she's written her book, The New Startup Mindset, and she's currently building her second startup, which is a disease intelligence platform for patients and their caregivers. And she speaks globally on building companies that make an impact. Today on the podcast, Sandra's gonna be talking to us about what it's like growing up and being in the heart of Silicon Valley while not taking funds from VCs in order to start up, grow, and sell her company. Her book and what she's gonna be talking about on the show today is about her experience building and then exiting Seeker Health, which was a digital patient finding platform to accelerate the development of treatments for patients who really needed them. Super interesting material and what she was doing. And since starting the company in 2015, Sandra developed a breakthrough software product. So she shifted from services into software, filed a US patent, and then built a team that served over 60 biopharmaceutical companies. And then in September 2018, Eversana, the leading independent provider of global services of the life science industry, acquired Seeker Health. You've probably heard me talk on the podcast about the insane pressure that our culture of business owners and entrepreneurs are getting from Silicon Valley to raise funds, scale the next company, burn through cash, so that way you can be the next unicorn. And Sandra completely bucked the system. She did not raise money and continuously denied funds from other people so that way she could bootstrap herself, create the wealth that she wanted, stay true to her vision for the company, sell it, and then start her second venture that she's currently on. Sandra's a great example about what being intentional means, how to stay focused towards your vision, how to grow a company that aligns with that vision, and then how to ultimately exit for success. If you want help clarifying your path to a more valuable business, go check out the Intentional Growth online course. Go to arcona.io, go to the education tab, and commit to learning what it takes to clarify that path, build a more valuable business, and increase the chances and probability that you get exactly what you want from your business long-term. Thanks again for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Sandra. Sponsored by Arcona's Intentional Growth Digital Course. Ryan Tansom and Pat Hobby show you how to shift your mindset away from solving for annual income to focusing on strategies that create long-term value giving you the freedom and choices to take control of the future destiny of your business. Accelerate your knowledge with 36 videos and dozens of exercises that combine decades of experience buying, growing, and selling companies. Learn more by going to arcona.io or visiting the show notes. Sandra, how are you today? I'm doing great, Ryan. I'm so glad to be talking to you. Yes, I'm excited uh, to talk to you about your journey. You've got a book out that has kind of wrapped a lot of your experience together and very good thoughts and a a good progress. And you and I, uh, we were starting to talk and what, what I thought was so interesting when we first started chatting is you're, you know, coming from the Silicon Valley world. And I, I've been kind of like 
underlying in my show over the last couple of years, kind of just like laughing about this pre-seed, you know, $10 million valuation with no revenue. And I just like, I'm sorry, I deal with the world of cash flow, <laughs> so it doesn't compute. And then you started talking about how you came from that world, yet you, you know, you did something different, which is very unconventional. So I'm very excited. I think it's a really fun bridge between both worlds. So with that being said, uh, like, just give us the background of like, what was the business and then how did you start it? And then we can kind of unpack the whole thing. Yeah, perfect. So let me start with, I was working at biopharmaceutical companies and I noticed that biotech companies had a really big problem. They had, they needed to find patients, especially for clinical trials, often with rare diseases, and they struggled to find these patients. Meanwhile, these patients happened to be online. They were on Facebook, creating groups to support each other. They were on Google, trying to find these clinical trials that the companies were offering. And I said, you know what, there has to be some better technology, like a better service and product that can connect these patients who are looking to be in a clinical trial with these companies who are looking for the patients that they need to complete the clinical trials. And so I began my company Seeker Health in November of 2015. And initially Seeker Health was a service. The service was that we were going to help the biopharmaceutical company create a compliant campaign on Facebook or Google to let people, uh, their potential patients know that there was a, an active clinical trial that was looking for them, mm. right? So a picture that on Facebook, instead of seeing an ad for shoes, you would see an ad saying, you know, clinical trial for XYZ disease is recruiting now, click here. And then you're directed to an educational website that would say, here's what the trial is all about. Here's what we're looking for. And if you're interested, fill out this form and someone will get in touch with you. So that's how the, how the company began. It began as a service. And then very quickly, I realized that that was just the beginning of the product market fit for, you know, for this particular need, that there was more that our company could and needed to provide. And so we began to build software so that once the patient submits their information, we had a platform where we would connect the patient with an actual hospital that could enroll them with the trial. And so we went into software and now became a service that then ended with a software interaction. And so as part of doing that, my company sort of straddled these two worlds, the world of service, where, you know, generally you make revenue and you have income and, you know, it's sort of less scalable um, and the world of software where you have scale and usually you get investors and, you know, you go through angel rounds and seed rounds and all of these things. So I was sort of straddling both worlds. And as I explored, you know, this process of like, well, what is the best way to grow the company? I came across what I now call the formula in Silicon Valley. And the formula sort of says that, you know, you're going to build this company and, you know, you're going to go raise funds and you're going to do angel and the valuation is going to be enormous. And uh, even though there are no customers and there are no, <laughs> there's no revenue, and then there'll be some customers and some revenue. And so now you're going to go into venture and venture is going to give you money. And they're really going to want you to knock this out of the park. Now you have to build a unicorn, right? Uh, because anything else than, you know, anything lower than a unicorn, God forbid you build a company, you know, that's worth a hundred million dollars, yeah. that wouldn't be considered a success. And so I'm looking at this formula and I'm just, 
it's just not resonating for me. And, you know, this is, you know, Seeker Health is my first company. I don't want to necessarily set myself to build a unicorn and consider it a failure if I don't, right? I want to build a company that makes an impact, solves this problem, makes revenue, has sustainability, right? Has income for me. And also I'm able to pay the payroll. of Self-sustaining. Yeah, self-sustaining. And so, <laughs> so the whole thing is not resonating. And so I decide, you know what? I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go raise funds. I have a few customers that signed up for the service. And so I'm going to use that revenue to pay for the software. And I'm going to use that revenue to pay for my employees. And if there isn't enough revenue to pay for more than five employees, I'm not going to hire 50 because I'm going to hire five employees and they're going to do the work of 50 employees happily. <laughs> so anyway, so, um, so the company, you know, the company succeeded. We grew very rapidly without having a very large team, without having outside investment. And then just to kind of take you all around on year three, I started getting acquisition offers, mostly from private equity type of platforms, right? Where they're looking for income. They're looking for that EBITDA. They want a profitable business. And so we met that criteria. I was running a profitable business and uh, I decided to sell the company to the third acquirer that came by. So I got this opportunity to travel through the entire spectrum of starting building and then exiting the company. Within five years. Within five years, yeah. And so since my approach had been sort of counter to the culture that I live in here at Silicon Valley, I decided to write this book, New Startup Mindset, to tell a different story. For the people that are not in the thick of Silicon Valley and that mindset, why don't you just give us, because I think this audience kind of straddles a little bit of both sides of this world too, because I got a lot of e-commerce entrepreneurs that are following this as well as, you know, which kind of migrates into the SaaS business, but also a lot of Main Street business owners who are manufacturing, well, you know, a lot of cash flow, a lot of private equity. So these kind of worlds are colliding, Sandra. And so as someone that's not familiar with how probably difficult it was for you to go against the grain, give us a little peer into that culture and that mindset of why it was such a big deal that you didn't do that? Yeah. The culture, I think, has a couple of elements to it. Uh, One, you're generally going to be pretty young when building your company. Um, You're going to go to an incubator, something like Y Combinator or something like that. They're going to take, you know, six to 10% of your equity right there. Then after that, you're going to get some funding, maybe from angels. Uh, At this point, you're sort of like building, trying to prove something to the market, but the valuation is going to be in the millions, even though there really isn't anything there uh, to value. And then after that, it's going, the process is going to begin for you to get venture. And that's going to be really celebrated. So when a company uh, finally gets, you know, a funding round, a series A, series B, you know, series A, 5 million, series B, 10, 50 million, so forth, this is going to be super celebrated. Oh my God, this company got $50 million. And people are going to think that maybe like the founder pocketed those 50 million, but the founder <laughs> got nothing. The founder got a salary uh, and, and the founder has some equity, but obviously had to give equity away. And the, what the money is for, the money is to build a company and it's to build a company as fast as possible in order to really become the market leader. And so I think that when, when you're in this culture, as I am, I would go to certain conferences for digital health and I would always get the same questions. How much money did you raise? And I'm like, zero. Who did you raise it from? 
no one. <laughs> yeah, my customers. <laughs> my, customers. <laughs> my customers are paying for a product that works. <laughs> and then the third question, how many employees do you have? right? As if more was better, right? They wanted me to say, I have a hundred employees. And the, the reality of the business that I was building was that I was trying to minimize the number of employees because I wanted the machine, the software to be the thing that scaled us. Right. right. Um, and so, you know, going to these conferences, getting the same three questions and being like, no, that is not the only way to do it. I mean, that is one way to do it. I want to say, Ryan, it is one yeah. way to do it. It works for some people. If that's the type of company you want to build, if you want to be working with venture capitalists, have them on the board, you know, benefit from some of the connections that they have, it is a way to do it. It is just not the only way to do it. And it is a difficult way to do it, especially for a first-time founder. Because when you go to raise money, they're, they're not, they want to believe in you. They want to buy you and your time. And if you've never done it before, it's hard to prove that you can do it, right? And, you know, one other anecdote that I want to share here is that I had a, a friend at that, at that time. Uh, he was a white man, scientific founder of a, of a company in the rare disease space. He had to go to 70 meetings with venture capitalists to get two to fund his company. Okay. And I'm thinking, okay, so you know that there White is dude. a bias against women, right? And minorities. I'm a Latina woman. And I'm like, okay, so here's a white man. He had to go to two, 70 meetings to get two. How many meetings do I have to go? <laughs> and instead of going to 140 meetings with venture capitalists, in, I'd rather go to 140 customer meetings because those customers at least half of them are likely to buy my product and pay me to use it. I love the dose of common sense in this conversation, Sandra. It's like so crazy refreshing. <laughs> it's like, I, like you just almost could just drop the mic, right? And, and I think, but with, uh, with all, all joking aside, I mean, you hit some really good topics is like, you know, the, it's one way to do it. It's not like, so I've joked around a lot about it on my show, but it's like, it's a legit thing. I've got a friend, he raised $24 million and like, he's got insane executives on his board, but like what he's doing is crazy and it, like, like monumentally changing and right approach for him because of what he's trying to build with AI and blockchain. But the, I mean, like, come on, it doesn't have to be everybody. So I think you just nailed it. It's not, doesn't have to be that way. And the general majority of the world, the world of cash flow and customer service is kind of how the world works. Yes. <laughs> so it's just so nice to hear it. And I, and I, and I, I can't even imagine, I honestly, I can't imagine being surrounded like in the middle of all this where doing what we're talking about is actually looked down upon or weird, weirdly. Cause like, it's just, I don't even know how to describe what it would must feel like. <laughs> Yeah, but I think in some ways, sometimes people do look down on companies that are profitable. They're sort of saying, well, if there's profit, why don't you dump all that profit into growing the company? And, uh, you know, it's a good question, but sometimes, you know, when I was running Seeker Health Year 3, there was enough profit there that you know, I can invest some of it and grow in the company and I can take some of it out to sustain me and, you know, distribute to anyone else that needs yeah. a distribution from that. So, Anyway. It's so crazy. Like, well, like, here's a funny story. Like I had a client that they were looking to buy a business and they looked at a tree trimming business. Like, like talk about as unsexy as you can get compared to the Silicon Valley world. The guy was making like literally netting personally. He had 
six employees. He was netting like 700 grand <laughs> and he was only just managing a couple crews. And I'm like, so how can you argue to this guy who is making literally couple million in revenue and pocketing 700 grand, probably wearing car hearts. And it's like, it's just about understanding what's important to you. So going back to like, how did you, like, were you in a certain situation where like, like you finally stopped listening to all that or, and you just were like, cause you, you and I were talking about focusing, maybe this kind of is a good tee up into how you have laid out your book. So like, where were you when you said, okay, this is the route that I'm going to go. And was it easy to say no to all that other noise? Uh, I wouldn't say that it was easy to say no to the other the other noise, but one of the things that I really did when I was building this company is I was really trying to stay intentional within myself, right? And I know that's half the title of this podcast, <laughs> right? But it is to, to be intentional to like, what is it that I'm trying to do here, right? And why am I doing it? And so it became easier when I was intentional about what I wanted to do that I didn't really need to go convince others to give me funding in exchange for equity. That that seemed, that started to be a formula that worked for my business and for myself, right? Because basically at that point, to be perfectly clear, I was building a business that was making an impact. It was connecting these patients. I had a payer, which was a biopharmaceutical company who was gladly paying a good amount of money and I could run this in a profitable way. So if I could do all of that, then why the hell would I follow this formula, right? right. And so and so that's what happened with the, the that specific business. I do, you know, I'm surrounded by entrepreneurs and other entrepreneurs have different circumstances where they're really trying to build something that doesn't exist today, that maybe it's very difficult to build, that requires a lot of capital, uh, and they maybe really want to need that market domination role. And so that's different. If, if, if those were my intentions, then maybe I would have considered venture capital, but those were my intentions with this business. And to some extent, my business was very differentiated within an area of the market, which was the rare disease area and the oncology area, cancer. So we were, we were finding cancer patients and rare disease patients, which put together are not that rare, right? Uh, A very large number of the population um, qualifies for these clinical trials but there were areas that our competitors deemed as really difficult to work in. And so we went after that area. So, you know, once again, it's sort of like in bringing this to a venture capitalist, I'm sort of picturing like, oh, why am I going to waste my time? You know, Mm -hmm. like it's just uh, when I have customers that I'm presenting to and they're saying, yes, I will pay you uh, to do this for us and and, and not take any equity, right? Just get the service and, and and the product in return. How long did you do this service before you started the software? I did this service for about six months and uh, I had five customers by the time the software was developed. So the first five customers only bought the service and it was with the fifth customer that really allowed me to realize that there was more to offer here and they were a really good partner in helping us test the software. So then my, like, I think this will kind of set the rest of the, the conversation into motion too, is like, I've had a bunch of people on the show and we've talked a lot of, I've talked a lot to clients who want to shift their business model because service is inherently difficult to scale because of all the reasons you would think multiples or the value of them are lower, harder to transition, all those things. But shifting to a software business is crazy different, different business model, how you fund it's different, KPIs are different, you name it. So like walk us through that transition and how you funded it. And maybe this like, ties into how your customers are paying because I watched that shift, Sandra, is so difficult 
because mm-hmm. of the, either the skill sets of the owner or the different types of business model, or even if the business model and the skills as the owner set it up, they don't have the funding to be able to deal with taking a project, reducing the, you know, going from a $10,000 project to a, you know, $50 a month subscription, just difficult financially. So that kind of teen it up, walk us through that journey. Yeah. So the journey was that I was running this service, noticed that there was a lot more that can be offered, had enough revenue coming in to say, well, I can hire some software developers. Okay. Now, the first thing that I did is I negotiated with the software developers to try to match the cash flow, not only to milestones, but oh, also cool. to the cash flow for revenue, right? So basically I wasn't going to pay a hundred thousand dollars up front. I wanted to pay a little bit, a little bit, a little bit so that as the customers were paying me, you know, they mm-hmm. were they were paying. And in the service area, what we were running were campaigns. So we were getting monthly income. And usually these campaigns had some sort of commitment of we're going to run them for at least six months. We're going to run them for at least nine months. So I had some ability to count on the fact that okay, for cool. the next nine months, I would have some cash flow coming in from these customers, regardless of what happened to the software. Okay. Does that make sense? So that yeah, really yeah. helped in no, this case. No, it totally, totally made sense. And just, uh, you know, for to kind of give you the context of why I was asking that. So one of our divisions of the business that we sold was uh, soft enterprise software. We were value-added resellers. So we weren't developing it, but we do these huge projects. And then like the way the business model was 10 years ago is like 15% annual maintenance. And like, so to take like a $250,000 project and then all of a sudden shift the business model for the pricing to like price per user, you go for $250,000 cash flow to then pay your salaries over 12 months versus, hey, by the way, it's now a thousand bucks a month. And you're like, how am I supposed to afford all this investment if I'm not collecting the 250? So you get into this trap. So like super, super helpful because I think it makes sense. Exactly. And I think, you know, one thing that is interesting to note about software is a lot of the software that we experience as consumers is relatively cheap, right? Like you pay $15 for a buffer, right? To post to multiple (laughs) social media things. You pay $29 for StreamYard, things like that. But in business to business, that's not what they're going to pay. Like in, if you're able to come up with like a premium B2B software offering, the, the, price tag could be in the six digit. It could be in the seven digit area, right? Where what they're paying for has a lot more value now to the customer, right? They're not just kind of coming up with some posts that they're going to put on social media and what your platform (laughs) is, is, you know, making that easier. The software is really enabling, in in our case, the software was enabling the finding of patients that were very valuable in completing the clinical trials that the company would need to create an asset that would eventually generate revenue for them, right? So, So if you can align your software to something that is of much greater value to your customer, then now software is not costing. Your revenue isn't $15 a month. Your revenue is thousands of dollars a month. Uh, tens of thousands of dollars a month. And hopefully, you know, you're also doing a good job creating some long-term contracts, some incentives for uh, customers to remain on the platform for two years, for three years. And therefore you're securing, right? Mm -hmm. Your monthly recurring revenue, your annual recurring revenue for a longer period of time. So I want to pull this uh, thread on the business operations a little bit, and then we can shift back up to kind of the book format and like the mindset, the formula, and some of the stuff that I know that you've got a lot of passion behind. Um, So as it relates, like 
when you're in the software world, how did you figure out how to price it? The product pricing fit in that mix is like a difficult thing. So were you talking to your customers? Did you have anything else to go off of and how to price that? And then the second part of that question is the con you mentioned contracts a little bit was some of the monthly reoccurring and annual reoccurring. I don't know if that was kind of spill off from the normal Silicon Valley world, but like, I'm just kind of curious on how you figured out that, that, that sweet spot. Yes. So in terms of the pricing inputs, I think there are always a, a couple of inputs to look at, right? So one is what's the value of what you're doing, right? Like, like that's from the top down. What, what is the value? What's the value of one patient joining this clinical trial? How much does that save in time? How much does that save in cost? So, so there was that way of looking at it. Then there was the way of looking at what can my customer pay, right? Uh, because they have budgets. They don't have a limited budget. They get a budget at the beginning of the year to manage. So what do these budgets look like for clinical trials? How much of that, that is generally allocated to enrollment? So how much do I have to work with, right? And am I a complete solution or am I part of the solution for them? Because if I'm only part of the solution and let's say they have $200,000 a year to spend on recruitment, but I'm only part of the solution, then I'm not going to be able to get that 200000 because they're also going to have to spend money on something else. Super. And then the third piece is competitors. What are my competitors charging them? And I had a little bit of information about that because I had worked on the other side of the equation, being the buyer of some of these services. So what are they charging for similar things? Um, what we were building was pretty unique at that time, but you know, mm -hmm. obviously competitors will catch up. But what, what are they charging? What do they think their work is worth, right? And so triangulating all of that then helps arrive at some price. And of course, at the end of the day, it's taking the price to a customer and a customer might say yes, or they may say, no, I need this to happen, right? And, and sort of figuring that out. And then I think the other part there uh, is to then begin to tier the customers because not all customers are the same. Some customers are big companies, some are emerging companies, uh, some are really in a rush to get this clinical trial done, some have more time because they have other assets already, you know, generating revenue. And so that tiering then becomes kind of like the next element to add into this analysis of like, where really should we be playing to win business? Now, in terms of the monthly recurring revenue and the annual recurring revenue, yeah, these are Silicon Valley beloved terms, right? <laughs> Multiple <laughs> of MRR, ARR. <laughs> Yeah. MRR, ARR, but here's the thing. <laughs> uh, since I was doing the majority of the sales for my business, I don't want to have to go every single day and get a new customer. You know, getting a new customer is a lot of work. It's a lot of setup. You know, I have to make a presentation or multiple ones, then have to do a proposal, then they have changes to the proposal, and then we have to be set up as a vendor, then we have to onboard them. It's a whole process, right? And many times it would take us like four months to, to get a customer on board. And so trying to secure the annual recurring revenue mostly came out of this need of scaling myself and the sales operation, right? That I don't want to have to go get new customers. So if I could retain my customer for a longer period of time, that's great. If I can get the next clinical trial for the same customer, that's great too, right? So that, that was a really big focus in that what is really draining a lot of energy from the sales process, getting new customers. So let me try to retain the ones that I have. Let me try to get more out of the ones that I already have. That was awesome. I, I think uh, it, it's going to tee up my next question very well. So you 
described all of that with a lot of confidence, but you and I were talking right before we hit record that you don't know everything when you jump into entrepreneurship. <laughs> so you learn, I can only imagine the bruises that you have from learning what you just described. So let's talk about like, how did you figure these out? So, you I mean, you mean you went from service to software, you're, I mean, all the stuff you just described. So what is the mindset and how did you learn these things? Who were you going to for advice and talk about the beginner mindset like you've uh, written in your book? Yeah. So let's start with beginner's mindset because I really, I'm still practicing that every day of my life, but beginner's mindset is the concept that when we show up to build a business, we are beginners, at least at half of the things that we have to do as entrepreneurs. So I showed up to build my company, Seeger Health in November of 2015. I had some experience I had worked in biotech companies. I had some contacts. I understood the problem. And then there were like at least 75 things that I didn't know how to do, right? I never incorporated a business. I never bought insurance for a business. I never, uh, you know, had to create software. I never filed a patent. Uh, you know, I never, never did a bunch of things that needed to get done. And one of the things that I figured out was that having the mindset of a beginner is actually really useful. Instead of me being here thinking like, oh my God, I'm such an expert at all these things. I know everything. The, the, the opposite is more helpful to an entrepreneur is to say, you know what? I don't know a lot of these things. And that's actually a benefit because if I don't know them and I am able to intentionally say, I don't know how to do this, then one, I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be patient with myself. I'm going to go get help, right? Uh, to, for somebody to show me how to do this. And at the end of the day, the end result might be even better than if I was an expert because experts tend to be now pretty set in their ways, right? They explored all the possible ways and now they're set in their ways. Well, a beginner generally is more open to exploring all the possibilities that are out there. So I feel that that really helped me as I went into a, a startup that I knew some things, I didn't know the other things. Uh, and it really sort of helps in any project. You know, it was the same with publishing the book, right? Mm -hmm. I knew how to write and I knew how to do some things, but I didn't know how to do like all the other half of the things that took for the book to actually come to market and be held in the hands of readers. So uh, I think that that's, that's really useful. And yeah, after a while you start building some confidence, but the, the thing is to intentionally remain a beginner, right? And say, I still need to be learning. I still need to be open. I still need to be contemplating all the different possibilities here. I still need to be reaching out for help. You also asked who to reach out for help. So it's kind of like a web of, <laughs> it's a web. <laughs> so uh, sometimes I reach out for help to friends and fellow entrepreneurs who are building similar businesses. I would do that a lot, especially for back office things that would be in common, no matter what the business was. So, you know, oftentimes I would just call and be like, Hey, you know, who do you use for payroll? Who do you use for benefits? Who do you use? Who's your lawyer? You know, uh, have you ever filed a patent? Who's helped you with that? Right. So, so those are great to reach out to the network because sometimes it doesn't really matter what you're working on. Like an accountant is an accountant, right? Mm -hmm. um, I mean, sometimes it does matter, but in general, it, you know, most you. of these totally. things are, are generalists. And then, and then the, the other source that was incredible for advice uh, in terms of how to move the product along was our customers. You know, having customers is not just you're, you're servicing them, but in that servicing them and that trying to delight them, uh, 
you have the opportunity to ask them for what do they want? What do they need? How do they want to see this product evolving? What would be better for them? And so I feel that that also helped me a lot. I would sit down with my customers and say, what's not working? How can we be better? Uh, and I would, I would also ask them like, who do you like on our team? You know, who needs, who needs help? Like who needs help in communicating with you? Who's not communicating well with you when we're doing like our monthly reviews or whatever it might be. Right. So our, the customers are a really good source of information. I want to pull on that thread. And before I do, I want to say that it was, it was awesome that you literally answered one of the questions I was going to ask, which is how do you keep that mindset? And before we go into the customer thing, because that's super relevant is, uh, what did you, was there any point, Sandra, where you kind of noticed yourself getting too confident or did you notice it in other people? And then how did you course correct? Yeah, it, it happens because after you get a little bit of momentum, right? And you're like, oh, I got five customers. I'm hey, doing pretty good. You know, we're doing great. <laughs> and I wrote about, I wrote about it in, in the book that I, I got confident. And then I decided to start this like new vertical, like new brand uh, of our business that was going to be this kind of like uh, patient databasing type of thing. And I went into that and literally I had like three doors closed straight on my face, like bad, you know, like, like where you're like, oh my God, this is really not going well at all. (laughs) 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 And uh, I write in the book that, you know, I I decided to, to back away from that. Right. But, but part of what had gotten me into that situation was that by then I was a little bit too confident. And instead of like, kind of like doing the research and asking the questions and, you know, really making sure that this new product had a chance, had a need, you know, could have, could be launched in a way that it would survive. I kind of went a little bit faster and, and fell on my face. And then the best thing that I did was shut that down as soon as possible so that I can continue to focus on the product that was working, which was the first product. But that was a reminder of like, you know what, you have to stay humble. You have to stay curious, you know, stay open and patient and not get too cocky at any given time because, um, it might not, it might not work. <laughs> well, and it's, I, well, I want to put a huge exclamation point on that because I've witnessed that for my own life. So many people that have been on this show and one guy, he actually went through his whole, and I think through people's businesses, they, the distraction, the flashy object is kind of a little bit of, it's almost like gambling where you go and you pull the slots and you go, like, that worked. So that one's probably going to work. And you start to assume that the past is going to be like the future. And this one guy goes, yeah, you know, like he had sold his business and he said, uh, it was like I had the Midas touch because I sold the business for a bunch of money. And then he goes, then I realized I had the touch of death and every one of the investments that he put his money into that he, that he made all went back bankrupt. <laughs> and he was just like, I guess I don't have the Midas touch. So there's this kind of blindness that comes with it. So I think it's uh, that's why I wanted to highlight it. And I think you did a good job. So going back to your customers. I think that this is something that, first of all, our company, we're looking forward to doing this at the beginning of this year. And I think that there's a lot of people that are customers and that, I, and just my friends that I know that would benefit from tapping into their customers, the loyal customers, instead of trying to do it themselves in the corner office. So explain to me, like, what was the experience and like, how did you go about doing it and what worked and what didn't? Yes. So, um, 
I think it starts with building a close relationship with a customer, right? Where the customer begins to feel that this is more of a partnership, right? You're not just like, you're not providing a static service or product, but both the service and the product can be influenced by what they say, right? So I think that that's the first thing to show. I am like, I am willing to take your input and as we're growing this company, right? And so setting up that partnership in the beginning, I think is really important. And part of it is, is basically saying things like that. We're, we're looking to grow this company. We really appreciate having you as a customer and we wanna hear how we can best serve you, right? What else do we need to do or what do we need to not do, right? In order to have that. So it's beginning to set up that conversation. That conversation can happen when, you know, we are first pitching to them to say, this is the type of partnership that we're looking to develop, which means that, you're buying a piece of software and you're buying a service, but it's not static. It's going to be growing, right? In a direction that we can best serve you and the other customers that we have on the platform. Uh, And then it happens as we are delivering the service and the product. You know, we had sort of like an account manager for each one of these accounts that we had. And, uh, And that person's responsibility was to sort of get this feedback of, you know, what else could we be doing differently? What are we doing well? What are we not doing well? Many times we would get information about things or features that they, you know, witness somewhere else, you know, maybe not competitive product that they're using in another trial that they would want us to bring into our trial as well so that we match that functionality. So I think there's the setup of like, we're going to have a relationship where this is a partnership and then there's the ongoing asking. And then the final thing is that All this asking is in person, right? It's more like personalized, but I think it's always good to give people an opportunity to provide information anonymously because you Mm -hmm. never know what they're going to say anonymously that they don't (laughs) want to say to your face, you know? (laughs) And And so oftentimes with the end user of our software, what we did is we did a survey. You know, every so often we would send them a survey. And of course, not everybody would reply, but some people would reply and it was anonymous. And they would say, here are the things that I really like. Here are the things that I struggle with, with your software, with your service. And, uh, and then we would get some more information that was anonymous. Uh, with the anonymity comes a little bit of more courage to really say what's true. Yeah, yeah. How did you filter through that vice? Was there anything monumental that that either positive or negative feedback that you got from your customers that you really embedded into the operations or strategy of the company? Yes, um, we got lots of great feedback from our customers. And, and in general, we got great feedback. And then once in a while, we would get something that is like, well, we are not going in that direction, right? Like our company is not going in that direction. Yeah. So I'll give you examples of good feedback had to do a lot with building a lot more communication into the system that we created so that the, the hospitals can basically directly communicate with the patient through our system, right? And that was a, a good suggestion that in general, we, we took to implement. And then a suggestion was, which was not exactly where we were going as a company was to ask us to have more physical resources at the site, right? So if this hospital, let's say Stanford hospital is enrolling a trial for this specific rare disease, they, you know, one of the suggestions was like, well, why don't you have one of your people here at the hospital? And they're kind of like this in-person liaison. And it's a good idea in general. I just wasn't looking to build a company in that direction (laughs) where I have 250 people deployed, you know, in the field doing those types of jobs. That is not the type of company that I was looking to build here. And so, you know, it's a good idea. We're at this time not going to go in that direction. It must have been an interesting experience as you're getting that kind of feedback, though. Like, 
I mean, you're still getting insights into your customers because if they ever decided to leave you, you would understand why and you wouldn't be upset versus like having it be a surprise. I'm not saying that that happened, but like at least there's a open dialogue going on. Absolutely. Open dialogue and good ideas, you know, because I may not want my company, Seeker Health, to do that, but maybe I can research, hey, is there like a field force that I could hire, you know, like a contract field force that I can hire that is very flexible and I can deploy to Stanford for three weeks and then I can deploy to, you know, Palo Alto Medical Foundation for the next five weeks. I mean, there were other ways to solve that problem if that was really, you know, important for us to pursue. Mm -hmm. So as we're going, kind of going back to your book, then you got the kind of the three parts of start, build, exit. We've talked a lot about the start and the building. I don't know if we're if we're missing anything in the middle phase. Where were you? And I I see that there's usually some times or events that happen where someone goes, something's off. I'm not having as much fun, or I'm not making as much money, or like I'm not being, or the the, the impact could be greater if something else happens. So like. I don't know, like, did something happen where you started listening to these out of the blue offers or like, how did that transition into part three of the exit? Yeah. So I was actually very busy building the company because this was year three. So I was in the part that is kind of like the, the middle of the marathon. Right. And I'm just, you know, running every day, trying to get new customers, trying to improve our product offering, trying to keep our employees happy and retained, you know, finding new employees when we need them. So I was really in the middle of the marathon it it was it wasn't not tiring, right? It was it, it was it wasn't not tiring. Um, but you were having but was, fun. But but I was doing it, right? Yeah. I, I was I was definitely showing up every day and and doing it. And then what happened was that somebody who had been a contact uh, from the past reached out saying, "Oh, my company is looking to build into this area, and I noticed that you built a company. So why don't you come and talk to us about what you built?" And the the whole purpose was to consider the company for acquisition. So up until that point, I hadn't even thought about what exit would look like because to me, it's like, look, it's year three. Like it's not really necessarily like we haven't yet gotten to you know the. Mm-hmm the climax of what mm-hmm. this could be. Um, so I, I went into talks with them. They learned a lot through that initial process, decided not to pursue an acquisition with them. They were not the right partner. They were also concerned about our revenue, which actually turned out fine. Uh, and then I, around that time, as I was finishing those discussions, a second company came and said the same thing. We are, we're interested in buying what you build. And again, you know, not very not very great, uh, I think, uh, fit there. And then around that time, I said, okay, something's happening here. Everybody wants to buy this thing, or, or at least two people want to buy this thing that, that we built. So uh, I took a pause and I hired an executive coach to think through this concept of, do I want to sell the company now? Is this the time to sell it? Or should I decide to continue running it for another year? And so for me, Ryan, it wasn't this thing of like, oh, you know, it's not good enough or whatever. Mm -hmm. For me, it was more of like, I built something, it has value, it would be useful for me to, you know, extract some of that value, and then turn it over to a partner who is good and capable of making this bigger. Right. And so that's how I went in. And at that point I didn't have any other acquisition offers, but then a third company came along and that's the company that ended up acquiring Seeker Health. And one of the good things of taking the pause to work with the coach was to figure out what I wanted in this, in the sale so that I wouldn't have a lot of seller's remorse. Many times, you know, 
people sell their companies and then they're like, oh my God, I could have gotten like 10 times more or whatever it is. And then they come share their story on the podcast. And And so I wanted to avoid that. So we made a list of the things that were important to me, you know, in terms of valuation and in terms of, you know, how much time would they want from me to integrate it into their platform and, um, you know, what would would happen with the employees and the location of the company, all those things. And uh, so by the time the third company showed up, I had a pretty good clarity on what I wanted and I told them, and then we began to negotiate and I sold the company in year three. Um, and I don't have uh, seller's remorse. I know that it was early and I know that also it was probably the right time for me. I had gone through a cycle of that build and um, it, it was good personally from a financial perspective to have an opportunity to extract that value that was created before a lot of uncertainty happened. And, you know, it turned out that a lot of uncertainty happened, right? This pandemic <laughs> happened. Just a little bit, yeah. Yes. And this pandemic, if I was an independent business continuing to run it as I was, would have been a really scary time to go through. I think that at the end, we would have found a way. We were doing a lot of things virtually, which were very welcomed in our business and other businesses that were in our area continued to grow, maybe despite a blip. But, you know, it would have been it would have been tense and scary to go through all of that. And uh, I didn't have to do that. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, figuring out when and how to deploy your money is a different different kind of stress, right? <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I want to see if I can ask this question as well as I it's in my head is, so you're going through with the coach and I, I think it's really interesting because that's really honed in our, in our first principle of the intentional growth framework of really understanding what's important to you. And you have your beginner's mindset that you've mentioned. And what I have found in that now that you've gone through the full circle, Sandra, is you can, you'll probably better understand the question is like when it, when it comes out of my head is you can sit down and you can determine what's important to you. But if you don't have a clear path on how to get it or how to weigh the game against what you want, because like you, everybody listening could definitely write a list of all the shit they want, but that doesn't mean you have any probability of getting it. And when you think about like selling a business of the deal structure, pricing, how you value it, all the different types of buyers, which is the whole point of our, you know, meaty material, giving that gives people a better chance to articulate what they want. How did you deal with that? Like, did you learn the material first so you could better articulate what you want? Or did you figure out what you wanted and then went and found information? Or did you do a combination of the both? Yeah, it's kind of like a combination. I, I I feel like um the way that I learn generally is I take some input and I try to apply it. And then I take a little more input and I try to apply it. And so I, I, I tend to try to do that back and forth, back and forth. So I think here in the, in terms of the exit specifically, what happened was that first I was met with an opportunity, right? From company one. And through that opportunity, that was a practical opportunity to learn a lot of what would happen. And I used that. I, I called people who had sold companies, right? I talked to lawyers who were working on M&A deals. I really used that opportunity to inform myself. That deal didn't happen. But even though the deal didn't happen, what happened for me was that now I was more prepared. Now Mm -hmm. I knew what is an indemnity clause? (laughs) You know, (laughs) I knew, uh, you know, what is an earn out? What is a rollover? You know, like all these, all these words that were, you know, if you never sold a company, maybe you never ran into one of these, you know? So, um, so even though the outcome was that the sale wasn't completed with company one, what was completed was my introduction into the topic. 
right? Uh, my introduction and also my testing out of some of the contacts, right? I got to hire a lawyer because there was an LOI to review. I wanted to, you know, did, did I like working with that person or did I not like working with that person? So it was like a little bit of a test run. And then going into the second one, then now I can be a little bit more intentional saying, okay, I have an introduction to this topic. What else do I need to learn? What, it, what do I need to get clarity on as to myself and like my, what my intentions are from this transaction. And now going into the third company, I was in a completely different position, right? Uh, I was in a position of like, I know, I know what I want. I know what this is worth. And I also know what you're talking about when you say, yeah. And I can actually translate what I want into what you're saying. <laughs> yes. Oh, that's so, it's beautiful. And I, and I say that because like, honestly, Sandra, I've struggled literally for almost seven years now. Cause when you go out of it, the only, like when you're trying to describe it, I'm curious when, now that you're on the other side, when someone's like, okay, what's it like? And you start to learn those words and all that. It's like you, all of a sudden you're unplugged from the matrix and you see the zeros and ones. And so it's like someone that's plugged into the matrix, which is the grinding of owning a business and you're trying to describe to someone what the matrix looks like. And it's just like, they don't even know what questions to ask, but you don't want to patronize people. And it's just this whole weird experience when you almost realize you're playing the wrong game when you get yes. down on the other side. Like, what's your experience now that you've been unplugged, to use my yeah. terminology? <laughs> I mean, I think one of the most important things that I learned is that it's so important to ask questions. Like, a lot of people think that they look stupid when asking questions, but you don't look stupid when asking questions. When you ask questions, you look curious. And people like curious people because curiosity is the way to learn, right? Um, and so I think that was really important for me to be like, hey, you know, if I don't know somebody, I mean, if I don't know something, you might not necessarily want to ask it of your acquirer, right? But you you can hire somebody, you can talk to somebody and ask all these questions, ask them from the beginning. Like, what is an LOI, right? Like, mm -hmm. what is a purchase agreement? Why do I need to, why do I need to look in? to this. How are these deals typically structured? Like when you got acquired, what did you, what did it look like for you? You don't have to give me the numbers, but what, what did it look like for you? Like, what are the possibilities out there? So asking questions is super important. And I think in general, in our culture, we try not to do that because we think we're going to look dumb and we're not going to look dumb. Like you, I've been complimented many times for asking questions, for asking the right questions, for showing through my questions that I am following along and I am learning as the person is speaking to me. Awesome. That was super awesome and very helpful because I think, you know, there, there's one, this, this topic is something, Sandra, I've been like working on in my show because of the people I've had on it. I don't know if you've heard of Tom uh, Herman from the Alter Ego Effect. And it's like this concept and I, you know, he pushed back a lot on this imposter syndrome that I brought up. And like, it's this topic that you just addressed that I think entrepreneurs and business owners specifically get stuck into because you had to kind of fake it till you made it or whether you, you know, I've gotten pushback from people saying that as well. Like you shouldn't say that you should try really hard and make things happen, hoping that you're you know on the right path, but however you're doing it, you're doing it with a lot of faith. And then so being vulnerable at those early stages is very risky. And especially towards the end, it's also risky because your clients, your, the buyer, everybody around you potentially could screw you yes. if they were not the right people. So yes. like, there's not a lot of things in our world or culture economy that are setting that up that like you just described to be easy. So like, yeah. did you experience challenges or what advice would you have for someone that is 
kind of in the middle of not sure how to attack this topic? Yeah. I mean, I think in general, the the entire process of building a company is very challenging, right? You're trying to build something from scratch, from zero. It's usually something that didn't exist and now you're you're building it. But one of the things that should help is this, this mindset. There are things that you know, and the things that you know, you should have confidence about, right? And people expect you to have confidence about, right? So for example, in my business, I knew how to create uh, successful Facebook campaigns that would attract patients. I knew how to do that, right? And I taught people how to do that. So that I can be confident about. I can be confident in front of my customer saying, we are going to create the best possible campaign for you and it's going to get good results. And we're going to find the patients that you're looking for. That That's the confidence. And then there is no one in this world that doesn't know that there are things that you don't know, right? <laughs> right. But, but hopefully they're not necessarily the things that they are paying you the most money for, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell the people that, by the way, I actually don't know how to match you up with patients. All right. <laughs> right. So that's exactly the point that I want to make. If I am in the business of finding patients for clinical trials, <laughs> I need to know that pretty well. And I need to, I need to express confidence about that, but I don't necessarily have to express confidence about the fact that I'm still trying to figure out what's the best benefit provider for our employees, right? I'm still trying to figure it out, right? Or I am, you know, I'm, we're filing a patent for the first time, right? And this is to protect the company. It's not really to protect the, the customer necessarily. So I'm trying to file a patent and I'm going to be doing that for the first time. So I think that that's the balance, right? So it's not that we show up and we're like, oh, hey, we don't know how to do any of this stuff. That That's not what I'm trying to say at all. And it's not something that would be successful, you have to know what you're doing. Like whatever it is, the main product or service that you're offering, there has to be some confidence. There has to be some belief that the way that you're doing it is the right way. There has to be vision to move that forward. That has to be absolutely there. Now, what you are relieved of is that you don't have to know everything else that needs to happen in your company. Some things you'll learn, some things you'll hire people, some things you'll contract people to do, some things, you know, they might just need to go away or they might just not be an area of focus, mm -hmm. right? So I think that that's the balance that was really important to strike in this business of, you know, I can't show up and say, I don't know how to do the thing that you're paying me to do. We know how to do that. But, but, I, but I have some flexibility to go learn some other things that relate to the business that might not necessarily relate to the specific customer offering. That was awesome. <laughs> yeah, seriously. And so you hired the coach and I, I think with the challenge with this, like, like I actually renamed a lot of our marketing stuff a couple of years ago away from exit. Cause like you have to understand how the exit could go to reverse engineer it. Like that's the only reason you have to, you might never have to sell it. You could pass it on an estate plan, whatever. Sure. But like the, the reality is, so many people don't even ask these questions because all the people around them have such a stake in different outcomes that your people are terrified. I remember being like this, like you're like everybody either makes money off of the company or they're employed by the company or they want to buy the company at a discount. And I know I want to learn this for years in advance, but I don't even want to ask anybody because they're all going to give me shit advice. So like, yes. how did you deal with that? And like any words of wisdom of how someone that's thinking like that, they want to learn, you know, how to, how do you connect those dots? 
I think that the, the first thing is to know what the options are, right? So you're building a company. Okay, you started the company. Great. Congratulations. You got through the start. Now somebody's buying the stuff that you have, and hopefully you have a profit or you have some really great growth. You built the company. I think what's really important is to know what are your options here, right? Because there's, there's always a lot of options. And in the, when it comes to exit, there are so many options. There's the option to sell the entire company to another company. There's the option to sell a portion of that company. There's the option to bring in investors, right? That are going to recapitalize the company so you have more capital to continue going and you continue to work on it. In the first option, when you sell the company to another company, there are sub options to work with them for a year to integrate it or two years to integrate it or to walk away on like day two. And then beyond those options, there's options that Ryan, you discussed, right? In your podcast regarding ESOPs and, you know, other maybe legal structures that you could do to turn the the company, you know, to, to have it under some sort of trust that maybe goes to your children directly. So there's just so many options. So I think the first area is to educate yourself as a founder as to what are these options. They're all different. And, and what really matters after educating yourself is to then figure out what you want, right? And I have a whole chapter, ask for what you really want. Yeah. And people want different things. And it is okay for somebody to want an ESOP and for somebody to want, you know, to sell half of their company and for somebody to want to sell 100% of the company, because guess what? We're all in different situations. We're in different situations financially. We're in different situations with the age of our children, with the different situations with the age of our own bodies. And so, for example, if I am like, let's say, you know, I am a person mid-career, I may be interested in selling the entire company, getting those funds and then beginning to to build, you know, wealth over time. Right. From those funds that came my way. That is one strategy. Or I may be already let's say I was already wealthy enough and I don't need the funds from the sale of the company, but I still have this company and my intention is to at some point not work at it, then I may want to transfer it directly, you know, to my children and do something different. So it really matters to like, what do you want? So to summarize one, what's out there, right? Like what's, what's out, what are all the options And, and review all of them because you just don't know which one is the one that would fit now or would fit later. Um, and then it's like, what do you want? Do do you want to keep working at the company or not? Do you want to make a lot of money now or later? Do you want the money to come to you or to skip you and go to your children? Uh, do you want to pay a lot of taxes? Do you want to pay a little bit of taxes or no taxes? You know, like, I'd love to hear that people should submit the people that want to, the, the first option. <laughs> um, you know, like, like what do you want and what's the right structure? Right. And, and then after that, it's about meeting, meeting that acquirer, meeting that other party that is going to transact with you in this way. I like love that this has been a blast. I like, because what you just said, Sandra, is like, can you imagine sitting down, going back? I did it. I'm sure you did it before you now see the zeros and ones, like the matrix, like sitting down and un, like mapping out what you want is one thing, but like all the things that you just talked about, how can you figure out a path to go get what you want if you don't understand these things? That's it's right. Like, and, and people usually learn on the fly while they're trying to sell the business, which is just ridiculous. And it, yes. Yeah, I, I don't think I could have put it better myself. It's awesome. Yes, and I think, you know, one really good source of information for me have been lawyers. Um, and lawyers generally play a couple of, of roles when it comes to these 
transactions, you know, generally the lawyer is the person that's going to help you review the purchase agreement. So it's good to know one, right? Because they, they're going to help you review it and see if what you're signing up is, is what you should be signing up for and what you're getting from the companies, what you should be getting. But I think lawyers do a really good job kind of helping you see what's available legally, right? And there are a lot of like legal structures that can be set up that can have an impact on how you sell the company. And then what's the taxation, right? And that may be a lawyer, maybe an accountant that corresponds to that. But I've gotten, I feel like I've gotten a lot of good information, a lot of good education when it comes to these transactions from the lawyers that actually help these deals close. Well, and you know that they're not trying to buy your business or trying, like, it's just an hourly rate at the worst case scenario, you can part ways and there was an exchange in value. I think the one thing like that, I, I agree with you, like, and it's like interesting, all these topics just intersect, right? So you have tax and legal and all these things, but like the reality is the business is the common denominator and same right. with the owner. And so many attorneys don't have a clue about finance, like the true businesses finances. They might mm-hmm. understand some tax and legal structures, but then you got your CPA that understands tax, but doesn't understand legal. And then it, so like you have to like piece the puzzle together. It's a, uh, yeah, I actually did a presentation once and there was a guy in the audience. He's like, name one attorney that knows what working capital means. And, and it's like, okay, yeah. I understand your position, sir. But like there are M&A attorneys that are fantastic and actually have CPAs as well. And it's, this has been a blast, Sandra. I can't can't thank you enough. Uh, two questions, um, well, maybe three. Well, with a, I'll start with the, the first one. What are you doing now? What like you're happy with how things have gone. You've kind of described that. What do you, what's the, what's on the agenda? Yeah. So um, what I'm doing now is I I started a new company because obviously I just couldn't sit on my hands. So I started a new company. It's called Adnexi. It's a software company in B2B, also in pharma, doing a different thing. We're we're bringing in um, massive amounts of data on physicians and on patient advocacy groups and having Biopharma use that to basically bring better treatments to market. We're at the beginning of this journey, lots of things to still get right, Um, but I'm doing that. And then I am doing some real estate investing, uh, which has been really fun. And yeah, and that's pretty much it. And then I am cooking meals, you know, lots of (laughs) meals because my kids are home. (laughs) So last two questions. what does the word intentional mean to you? Um, intentional means that it is aligned to your true self, right? So if I have a true self, I'm being intentional with what I am doing or thinking or being or believing is aligned with my true self. It comes from my true self and it's not coming from some other um, more surface area. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, where does it, last question, where does everybody get in touch with you, find you, follow you, all find the book? Yeah. So I have a website. It's my name, sandraspielberg.com. Uh, the book new startup mindset is available everywhere with books are sold. So Amazon, Barnes or Noble, Indie Bound. Um, and it's been a pleasure to speak with you today, Ryan. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Sandra. I think a couple big takeaways that were really important. One is how she shifted from services to software. And then second is how she funded the entire growth of the business. 
If you really dive in and understand the financials of your business, you can foresee what's going to happen, where you're going to run out of cash, how you're going to fund the growth of your company, and what the future value of that asset is going to be, which is your company. And you can start to figure out where your cash constraints are going to be so you can determine whether it makes sense to raise funds or not. If you're going to raise them, how is it going to dilute your equity? How is that going to impact your net proceeds at a later date when you want different choices of exiting your ownership or moving outside of the day-to-day role of the business. Again, you deserve that kind of clarity. So go check out the Intentional Growth course, arcona.io. Go to the Education tab. If you get any questions, feel free to reach out to our team. Otherwise, thanks for tuning in. I will see you next week.